I think the biggest thing I see is that people don't know where to start and they feel often paralyzed by all the different things out there. Hey all, welcome back to Will Work for Podcasts. This is Brendan Boland. As we kind of review some of our highlights as we get ready for the next season, uh, this one comes from Dollars with Danny. And for any of you out there that are trying to figure out how to really start to take control of your finances, whether it's through budgeting, setting up the right kind of savings account, possibly, you know, doing that little bit of long-term retirement planning with, you know, that your Roth IRAs. This is a great interview for you in that it really kind of highlights what are some of those first steps that you can start to take to make sure that you're investing in yourself and and starting to to develop those habits that will help you grow wealth and just stability. So uh, we hope you enjoy. Please send us your rejection letters at will work the number four podcast at gmail.com. That's will work the number four podcast at gmail.com. We really want to hear your rejection letters, your acceptance letters, like and subscribe. And if you can, give us a rate and review. Yeah. And on with the show. All right, we're joined here today with Dollars for Danny. And Danny is a, an HR professional. She's a part time MBA student. And then she's also kind of a financial advisor. And I found her stuff through her Instagram account, which is Dollars with Danny. And definitely, if, if anyone's got some of these burning questions about budgeting or investment or where they should be at this point in their, their career with finances and other things, I, I highly recommend it. The, uh, the design and layout and everything is just really beautiful, easy to read. So uh, thanks for being with us, Danny. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. Can you kind of take us through this process? It seems like you're wearing a lot of hats right now, which is probably pretty exciting. And so what what do you consider yourself? And, and, and kind of when you think about where you're moving, where do you hope to work with people? Yeah. So I my full-time job, like you said, is in human resources. So kind of day in and day out, that's where my main focus is. But I have my in undergrad, I studied economics and have always loved things related to money and personal finances. And back in April, so it was kind of like a little quarantine project, I, I realized that a lot of my friends don't know much about personal finance and it's such an important topic. And so kind of on a whim, I made this Instagram account and I was like, oh, I can help people. I can help educate people about the basics of personal finance because not a lot of people know about it. And from there, it just really took off and grew. And so now I'm trying to be a little bit more strategic about it and, um, you know, helping educate people around personal finance, but then also help giving people tips about how to navigate their career or their job search or kind of other HR more focused things as well. So I'm really just hoping to continue to educate people moving forward. And how does the MBA fit into all of this? Um, I think it just helps give me broader business context too. And it, I mean, I've taken some finance classes and accounting classes through that. So it's also enhanced my knowledge, but really more just, you know, the business acumen behind the business of, of running Dollars with Danny. You started this Instagram account. What are some of the things that you see are pretty, how do I say, common between people who are trying to save money and the, the mistakes they made? I think the biggest thing I see is that people don't know where to start and they feel often paralyzed by all the different things out there. Should I invest? Should I save? Should I pay off my debt? What do I do first? What's the right thing? And I think sometimes people fail to actually start making progress with improving their finances because they just get so paralyzed by all the information that's out there. Well, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, I am right there. Okay, I'll take you through my circumstance and maybe that can be reflected in other 
things that you've seen. And it's just, I recently just got a, a job after being out of work for a few months. And, you know, I spent the first few months of my job paying off debt and getting my credit card down and it's all, all good. And I was like, oh yeah, this is awesome. Everything's great. I, my credit card pets uh, pay down. And then it was, what do I do next? Yeah, no, I think that's a really common question. And I know it's kind of a cop-out answer, but I think it completely depends on what your goals are. If your goal is, I want to have a lot of money at retirement, that's going to look very different than I want to buy a house next year. So the way that you save, the the avenues that you use to save or invest your money are going to look very different depending on what your goals are. And I think for many people, they might not have a specific goal, in which case I'd say save for retirement. And maybe, you know, if you have a 401k or a 403b or whatever else your employer offers, consider trying to put money into that as kind of a first step because that is investing in a way that's tax advantaged and also focusing on the long term. But again, it depends really on what what matters most to you. What's your goals right now? Well, let's stick with that because I, I noticed one of your earlier posts was about a 2021 financial plan. Can you kind of take us through what that looks like and, and how, how would you help someone start to build out that that kind of plan for themselves? Yeah. And I think something people do when they think about a financial plan is they think too broadly. Like, I want to save more money or I want to start investing. And it's really hard to hold yourself accountable, right? If I just want to invest more, like, what does that mean? Did I do a good job? Did I not? So I, I think it's important to be really specific and say, I want to save X dollars for X specific reason. And in order to do that, I need to save X dollars per month. And, and be really specific about it. Or I want to start saving money in my Roth IRA and I'm going to contribute $100 a month. Like be really specific. And again, those things should align with what your goals are. But I think the the vagueness is where people really get tripped up. So they're like, well, I wanted to invest, but now I'm not really motivated because I'm just like investing sometimes, maybe. Like I think being specific is really what's key. I think you're absolutely right. And if you want a specific, I was talking to my partner one of our financial goals, now that we're both stable, should be to save enough money to be unemployed for six months, which which I've calculated as like twenty four grand essentially between the two of us. How do you save twenty four grand? Yeah, I mean it's it's hard because it's this big daunting number, right? That's like that's a lot of money. Um, so I think break it up into smaller pieces. Like, do you want to have twenty four grand by the end of this year? Maybe the next two years. Like, what's the long? What's the time frame for when you want to save that money? And then I divide it into monthly amounts and see. Okay, does that mean I'm saving two hundred dollars a month in order to reach that goal in you know this year or in two years or whatever the time frame is between you and your partner? And see if that feels reasonable, right? Put that two hundred dollars into context of all your other expenses. Is that a reasonable thing to do to save two hundred dollars a month? If not, then maybe adjust your goal or your time horizon or, you know, adjust how much you're contributing. Um, and, and I think you kind of have to break it down to little bite-sized pieces because otherwise 24 grand is going to sound like a huge number and you're going to feel paralyzed by it again. One of the challenges we have in our household is around budgets and just kind of keeping a budget. I'm curious what recommendations you have maybe for those that that know that they want to track more consistently and and are just struggling to find maybe the the right tool to do that. Stop buying vintage records, okay? <laughs> that, I will say the secondhand record market is definitely, she's a cruel temptress. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think there, there's two main ways people tend to budget. There's using a budgeting app where you can connect all of your bank accounts into this app and it'll pull in all of your expenses. And then you kind of set a budget for each category and you can easily track it. It's in your hand, it's on the go. It takes a lot of the manual work out of it, which a lot of people like. So, you know, some of my favorites are the app Mint, M-I-N-T, 
And then a lot of people like um, the app called You Need a Budget. That one does cost money. Um, although if you're a student, I think it's free for the first year. But people swear by that app too. So I think those are two of the more popular budgeting apps, but there's so many out there. The other option is to do it more manually and track it in Excel. The downside of that is that it's more manual, right? You have to like download all of your transactions and add them into the spreadsheet. But the pro, I think, is that it makes you a little bit more accountable for what you're spending because you have to literally write down every expense. Like you can't ignore that time you went to the record shop or went shopping or whatever else. Like you have to hold yourself accountable. Do you hear her, Brandon? You can ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like that's that's been the funny thing. When the moment we joined all of our expenses between my wife and I, like, you know, that definitely was a good reminder for both of us that you had someone else that was holding you accountable, which I think was a work for our favor. Yeah. Definitely. That all makes perfect sense to me. And I used to have mint, but maybe I should get back on that horse. But um, we're talking as two people who have jobs and like can save money. So I think we need to go to the other side of this equation and talk about the people who are unemployed, who are struggling to get by. How would you help them? Like what, what, what tips and suggestions do you have to them? From a financial perspective or getting a job perspective? No, from a financial perspective, you're, you're unemployed, you're looking for a job, you might have a little bit of savings, um, you might have, I don't know, you might be on unemployment. There, there's a plethora of things in this situation, but like from a financial perspective, what is something that you would, what's like five or some tips that you would give them? Yeah. I mean, the first one you already kind of mentioned, which is, are you eligible for unemployment, right? There's no reason not to file for that and, and get a little bit of extra income from that. You know, the other thing is thinking about if there's other ways you could get kind of interim income, like maybe your, your real career you're unemployed from, but like, can you do Uber Eats on the side to get a little extra cash, you know, things like that to actually have some sort of income sources. But even if you're, you know, fully unemployed, not making any income, I think it's, I think actually budgeting is really, really important because you need to be really deliberate about where every dollar is going. Like maybe it means you're not eating out or maybe it means you're not doing kind of this extra frivolous spending and being really deliberate with where your money's going, making sure it's going to your bills and your rent and, you know, potential health care and whatever else, you know, you might be paying for like COBRA payments if you're unemployed, which is very expensive. So really being deliberate with where your money's going and not, not putting it towards things that aren't as helpful for you in a situation where you're unemployed. It's hard. It's really hard. And that's where I think having an emergency fund is so, so helpful. And it's hard if you're in a situation now and you don't currently have it, but kind of looking proactively to the future. Like I think what the pandemic has shown a lot of people is that emergencies do happen. You do experience unexpected healthcare costs or you do potentially lose your job unexpectedly. And so to have that cushion saved up in a savings account, ideally a high yield savings account, is so important because then it doesn't feel as stressful when you're in that moment because you have some cushion. You know you can pay rent. You know you can pay for your utilities or whatever else because you have that cushion saved up. One of the things that I, I saw you post a, a while ago was five money habits that are keeping you broke. Mm. And I was just curious if you could share some of those insights. What, what are you noticing are, I wouldn't want to say frivolous because I think a lot of people spend in ways that, that often are for gratification or for, for self. But I'm, I'm just curious, what, what are some things that you kind of see our trends where people maybe can find extra savings that they didn't realize they had? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't remember actually what I put in that post or not, but I, I think one of the the toughest things is if you have your credit card number memorized or if it's 
preloaded into like PayPal or your browser in general, because then online shopping becomes way too easy. And it's just a quick click of the button and you don't have to even like stand up to go get your credit card to enter it. So I think that is a, a big thing. People just spend it's impulse spending. They don't think about, do I really need this? Is this something that is going to be important for me? Um, you know, two weeks from now, like, you know, it, it's just too impulsive. So I think delete your credit card from all all sources of of shopping or where you know where you spend money. And I know that's not always the easiest like Amazon or something like that might be hard, but the more you can stop yourself from impulse spending, the better. Yeah, I feel like the moment that PayPal took that next step and embedded in everything, it's made it even easier, right? Cuz I yeah. I don't even need to like type that in and like for me it has a whole different revenue stream that I use and so that's been a funny adjustment in the last few months that I definitely resonates with me. It's interesting, Danny, maybe you'd be able to answer this question because I think it's a question a lot of people have is what's the difference between gratuitous spending and essentially spending to preserve yourself? Yeah, I mean, the difference between like what's okay to spend on fun things versus what's like overspending, right? Yeah. I think it really comes down to your budget. If you've planned and allocated money for that thing, then it's okay. But if you're overspending or you didn't plan to have that expense, then it's not as okay. So like, for instance, I budget $200 a month to go shopping. Now I don't always use it, but the months where I do spend $200 shopping, I don't feel bad about it because I incorporated it into my budget. I planned for it. I know I'm still making more money than I'm spending overall. So it feels okay. But if I were to spend $500 one month, on shopping, that feels like overdoing it. And maybe now I'm spending more than I'm earning. And that's obviously not what you want. It just seems tiring sometimes at the end of the day to be like, oh, I'm going to break down my entire budget to understand. Because for me, I just do, oh, I get $1,500 a month to do whatever I want with. That's my like budget overall. Now, do I break it down into smaller pieces? No. Yeah. And I I totally get that. And I think what the cool thing, maybe this is just the nerd in me, but the cool thing about budgets is that they are completely personal to you. So I might break my budget down into way more subcategories than you do. And there's actually a big account on Instagram. I don't know if you follow them, but the account is her first 100K. And she's a proponent of not breaking it down. Like you have basically like needs, wants, and savings. And like everything goes into her wants that's not her needs like her rent is needs her um like utilities are her needs and all the other stuff she spends on is her wants and that's what works for her i personally like to break my budget down into lots of little subcategories maybe you're one extreme or the other or maybe you're somewhere in the middle but that's what to me what i think is the beauty of a budget is you can make it whatever you want let's talk a little bit about your career coaching and in this background that you have in hr and one of the things that I really appreciated you having out here, and this is a question that I struggle with, what recommendations do you have uh, regarding expected salary, either in an application or an interview? Yeah. So this is a very contentious thing. There's some people who are very much like, don't ever give a number first. Like, then they're going to screw you over, like very much of that mindset. And I think there are certain opportunities where you don't have to give the number first. However, from working in HR, I will tell you that there are many companies and many recruiters who will need a number from you, whether it's in the application or in the first phone screen, and they mo- they won't move forward with you if you refuse to give a number. So you, you can try. You can say, like, I'd like to be paid just, you know, what's in line with the market or something like that. But if they push back on you, sometimes they will just want a number. And the reason for that isn't so that they lowball you. No company wants to underpay their employees, right? They want to pay people what they're what they're worth, because that's how you retain talent. So what they're they're doing is making sure you're aligned, right? Because if you say, 
I'm completely unwilling to go under, say, $100,000 in terms of salary, and they know that there's no world in which they can go over 80000 then why waste going through the interview process for either of you if you're not aligned? So what they're trying to, to figure out in those early phases is, are we in the same ballpark? You know, are you saying I'll, I'll, you know, I'm thinking 90 ish, but I'm okay with 80 and they say we can't go over 80 and you say, okay, that's, that's fine. You can still negotiate later and maybe you add a sign on bonus or something else to the offer to kind of sweeten the deal, but it just makes sure you're in the right ballpark so that that's what those conversations are for. So I think I personally always give a number when I'm interviewing. And so in terms of figuring out what that right number is, I think doing your research is really important. And there's a lot of online resources that can give you at least a ballpark. So salary.com is one, um, payscale.com. Glassdoor's okay. It gives you a rough sense, but it's all like, you know, self-reported. So you get sometimes a little bit of a bias there. And then if you pay for LinkedIn premium, they also have a salaries feature as well through that. So those are a few online resources, as well as you can kind of talk to people in your industry and get a sense if they're willing to share kind of what they used to make at that company or what they do make at that company, just to get a general ballpark of kind of what is typical to be paid in that in that role and for your experience. You give them a number, and then the number is below their no, below your number. And so how do you get them to your number? Yeah. So I think the tricky part is when you're first talking about compensation, you're not at an offer stage, right? It's usually either in an application or in the initial phone screen. So at that point, you're not negotiating. You're just, like I was saying, you're trying just to figure out if you're in the same ballpark. Then once you get the actual offer, first of all, I would never negotiate on the spot. Always say, thank you. I'm so excited about this. Can I take a couple days to think about it? Then you have time to like collect your thoughts, you know, pull yourself together, game plan. And then when you go back to them, I think the best way to phrase it, especially if you gave a number that was lower before and now you want, like say you you said, I'm willing to accept 70, you got an offer for 70 and you're like, well, I kind of want more than that now, right? Or maybe they gave you less than that. I think a good way to go about it is saying, after learning more about the scope of this job and what it entails, as well as you know, learning more about what the market rate is for a role like this, I was expecting something closer to 80 or whatever number you want to name do you have any flexibility? And leave it as an open-ended question, not like will, like yes or no, will you match this number? Leave it really open-ended, see what they come back with. Maybe they say, look, we can't give you that full amount, but we can give you a sign-on bonus. Maybe they give you that amount. Maybe they say they can't, in which case you can kind of counter with other types of non-salary things like more PTO or tuition reimbursement or whatever else it might be. But I think leave it with an open-ended question, like do you have any flexibility in terms of, of you know, this number and, and see what they come back with. Yeah. Following up on that, what are some of the other things that you can negotiate in the offer stage? There's really so much. Yeah. So obviously salary is the, the first thing people think about. There's bonuses. So there's often sign-on bonuses, or you can negotiate for like a guaranteed annual bonus. I've seen that done before. You can negotiate for stock options. You can negotiate for like more PTO, more like a flexible work schedule. Like maybe you want to work four days a week, longer hours and take off Fridays. Or maybe you, you know, in a post-pandemic world, you want to continue working from home all the time or most of the time, tuition reimbursement, commuter costs, work from home, you know, equipment costs, like really anything you can think of, you can negotiate for. I'll say the only things that are very difficult to negotiate for are things involving your insurance and your 401k match because the way those plans are set up, it's the same across the company. You know, they're not going to change your premiums for your health insurance. It's just set across the board. So those are going to be hard to negotiate, but everything else you might potentially want an employer to pay for, you could you could try to get negotiated for. 
I've heard somebody say some similar things to you before about negotiating the salary. And it just all sounds so easy. But when you're in the mo- moment doing it, because I remember when I got my job, I was just desperate. Like I wanted, I needed the money. I needed to keep the lights on in the house. I just needed that job. And I was not mentally prepared to do a salary negotiation. I was just like, whatever you want, whatever you want to give me, whatever, it's fine. And so how do you maintain that mental space in your job search to know I'm worth this? I deserve more. I think the way to think about it is you have so much power when you get an offer. There, that's the employer saying to you, we want you. Out of all the candidates we interviewed, we want you specifically. So you, like no other point when you're working at that company will you have more power than when they want you to join. And so I think channeling that and remembering that, like they want you for a reason and they want to get you on board. They Like if you say no, what they have to go back to another candidate or potentially interview more people, like they don't want you to say no and turn down the offer. So they're going to want to be a little bit flexible with you. And so- Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they can't. Maybe there's constraints in terms of salaries, which is where some of that other stuff comes in. But I think just remembering you have a ton of power in that moment. And so that's why I think it's helpful when you get the offer to not try to negotiate in that conversation because you're already overwhelmed by, I just got an offer. I have to digest what the salary means. I want to look over the benefits. Like that's not the time to do it. But take a break, like take, take a couple days, think about it. And honestly, I know it sounds really silly, but practice what you're going to say. Stand in front of the mirror, talk to yourself, say the words out loud and kind of get your your pitch down perfect almost. And so then when you get in the moment, even if you kind of panic in the moment, your body kind of knows what you want to say because you've practiced it in front of the mirror out loud a few times. So even if you don't get the words exactly the same when you actually do it, you kind of know what you're trying to say at that point because you've practiced. I, I really appreciate that. I, I got very lucky in this last round of of the hiring process where the, the HR manager who was dealing with the, this particular role, like actually told me that in a conversation. Like she stopped the conversation. She's like, by the way, Brennan, remember that you have power in this moment. We were talking about start dates and some other things. And I was, I was feeling very much a pressure to start immediately because that, that was communicated to me by my now boss. Just an interesting take where someone had the ability in that moment to kind of remind me of like, by the way, this is something that you can actually advocate for if you need it. It was a radical change in the way that I thought about that process for sure. Yeah. Earlier in, in, in this talk, you kind of mentioned... LinkedIn Premium. We've had one other guest tell us a little bit about that. And so is that a service that you end up recommending to clients who are able to pay a little bit extra? And I'm curious, like your thoughts about how to effectively use LinkedIn in this process. Yeah, that's a good question. I find that it's very helpful if you're actively job searching. I don't think it's at all necessary if you're not actively job searching. Like if you're kind of just passively looking or if you're not looking, I don't think it's worth the money. But if you're actively job searching, like maybe you've been laid off or something like that, I think it can be helpful, but I don't think it's necessary. Like you can absolutely still get a a good job without having LinkedIn premium. But I personally have always done it because I just think it gives you a little bit of an edge up. Like you get you get that salary information. You get that like comparison feature to see how you compare to other candidates. You can message more recruiters, which I think is a huge part of trying to get a job these days, especially with these applicant tracking systems, like screening out so many resumes. Like if you can get your message in front of a recruiter through LinkedIn, that's hugely beneficial. So you can do that more with having LinkedIn premium. So I think it's really helpful, but I don't think it's a necessity, especially if money's already tight and you feel like you can't afford another thing because it's not super cheap. So I think if you feel like you can't afford it, it's perfectly fine to not have it. That makes a lot of sense. I guess then when you look at, say, a profile for some of your clients and you're, you're helping through this process, the coaching process, 
What are some of the big things that you make sure that they recognize or highlight or areas of improvement that you kind of readily see? Yeah. I think the big one is headline. I think there's a couple things I see a lot that are not good. Anything aspiring, like aspiring HR manager. Why why aspiring, right? Like you want people to hire you for what you are. Just even if that's not your current job title, tell them what you want them to see. Aspiring immediately knocks you down a notch, right? You're you're not that role yet. So take out aspiring HR manager or whatever that from your headline. And also don't ever put looking for opportunities because you're on LinkedIn. You're if you're actively using it, they know you're open to opportunities. Plus there's now a button you can choose to show recruiters that you're open for opportunities. So you're wasting headline space if you put looking for opportunities. So fill that space with either like your job title or competencies. Like I could put like human resources, talent management, diversity and inclusion, like things that I do more competencies than actually like HR manager at X company. So either one of those is perfectly fine, but nothing with aspiring and nothing with looking for opportunities because I think it's a waste of your headline. I'm noticing that more and more people are almost putting, like I saw one the other day that had like 10 different things. I guess it's thinking very much of like, what am I actually trying to accomplish? And like listing that, like, I I don't know, I'm curious, like with the the headline, like what kind of language do you recommend? It's a balance of things. You want to have enough keywords in there that you'll show up in a search by a recruiter because I think that's what a lot of people try to do why they like overload it with too many things but you also don't want to seem unrealistic right because you can show a lot of these skills through your profile on LinkedIn too so I I would keep it I don't know if I have an exact number but I think like if you're doing like the competency route maybe five or so at, at most I, I wouldn't do like 10 15 competencies I don't even know if there's enough space for all of that just because it looks cluttered and then it, it it takes away the impact of them too like are you really an expert in 15 things like probably not so I think maybe keep it around three to five as part of the headline and then if there's other keywords you want to highlight make sure to just highlight that through either your like summary section or through the actual work experience section on your LinkedIn profile. Okay. Well, I, I just went on LinkedIn quickly and I see one, it says developing systems, one person at a time. Yeah, that's terrible. (laughs) uh, That's mine. Oh no, I'm sorry. Uh, It's all right. Thank you for the brutal honesty. I'm sorry. See, that's why we have this podcast. (laughs) All right. It's okay. Mine's a bell hooks cut. So I recognize that I need to change mine as well. I'll tell you why, why that's where my mind went, because I, I think it's too gimmicky, right? It doesn't seem genuine enough. Like what what does that tell me about you? The systems part is fine. Like developing systems, cool. But you know, like I think tell me what competencies you do. What skills will I get from you? And that that didn't tell me that other than that the developing systems part. So would you say like developing systems through HR if you're in HR or something? Yeah, you could say through HR or what I, I see a lot of things be like using the slash isn't the right word. Like what's the upward slash on your keyboard? I don't know what the name of that is. Yeah, it's the line. I, I know what you mean. The line. Yeah. So you could do like developing systems, line, talent management, line, like whatever your different competencies are and just kind of list them almost like bulleted form instead of it being a full sentence. And that way, all of those things could show up in a search from a recruiter. I think that's a good way for us to end. This has been really eye opening because I was looking at like savings accounts yesterday mm-hmm. and I was thinking, oh my God, this is so grown up and I hate myself. And also, why does savings account not give you anything back. It's like 0.5% or point, there's like 0.001% for Bank of America. Yeah. And I was just like, where do I put my money? It's, it's it's pointless putting it into a savings account or do you think a savings account is worth it that way? 
So it, it depends on your goals again, right? So the way I think about it is your emergency fund should always be in savings because it's safe there. If you put it in the stock market, you run the risk of losing it. And when it comes to your emergency funds, you don't want to lose your money. Um, the other part is the time horizon for your goals. So I like to say if you need the money within the, fi- the next five years, like say you're buying a house next year and you're saving up money for that. If you need the money in the short term, keep it in a savings account. If you need the money in the longer term, say you're saving for something in 10, 15, 20, 30 years plus, then you want to invest the money. And the reason for that is the stock market you know, goes up and down, right? But it trends upwards over time. So in the short term, you could lose money because you might need the money when the market's down and you would have to you know, take out your money at a loss. But in the long run, it trends upwards. So you don't have that same risk of losing all of your money if you wait 15 years, right? So that's why short-term goals should be in the savings account to, to make sure that you don't lose that money. And is there a savings account you would recommend? I think any high-yield savings account. So some of my favorites are with Ally Bank, Marcus by Goldman Sachs, Capital One 360, American Express, M1 Finance. Like those are all really good ones. And they're all the ones offering about that like 0.5% interest rate right now. I wrote three of those down, so. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'd like to end with just kind of having an opportunity for you to promote, you know, how people can use your services. And so if people are looking for either financial support or, or the career counseling, where can they find you? So you can find me on Instagram at dollars with Danny, or you can go directly to my website, which is dollarswithdanny.com. And that's actually where you could actually sign up for my coaching or some of my other services that I offer. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Like this was, this was great. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you so much for having me. She really did it like by uh, <laughs> like did headline. When you said it out loud, I'm like, oh, I've read that someplace, but I'd forgotten that that was yours. That was a good moment. <laughs> I like her point of it's a good headline if, say, you were let's say you're a director of an NGO and you're you're representing the NGO, or or even like if it was a, the one for will work for podcast where we're saying improving careers one person at a time, right? That makes sense. Right. But her point is like, that doesn't tell me what you do. No, I completely agree with her. I just changed it to developing systems dash international development because that's where I am right now. So that makes sense. Nice. There you go. Well, so what's your key takeaway? What's one piece that you you want to use? I'm definitely going to try next time I do a salary negotiation to do what she said. Like one of the key takeaways is just remember that you have power and that she didn't say this, but her, you know, your dollar has power too. So where you put your dollar and where you value yourself are just as important as anything else. I think the other thing that I'm really starting to understand is the value of the HR representative in that negotiation. Yeah. We, we've talked now with a number of people in HR and they are, they're, they're person-centered, right? They're definitely on the side of the employee and want to make sure that the negotiation fits you the best way possible. And I think the cool part about that is it's because of the fact that they see your fit as their accomplishment. And I I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. Like when you get that person for that role, it's a win for the company because you're filling something that's a need. Like there's a reason people hire people. They need a service that somebody's not doing. And if they get that right person, that means they have a win and that things will be better. It's important to remember that you have value. Yeah. And I, I guess the other side of that in thinking about the budget conversation in terms of spending and, and saving, I think her point too is be really clear about what you want. Yeah. So if you want to be saving for that trip, then that's your priority and that's what you're you're putting money in towards that. And so I think that's also another piece of empowerment 
is the idea of like your money is your money and how you choose to allocate it is is part of that too. It's part of your identity and it's part of how you have agency in this. Yeah, great interview. Everyone out there in uh, Hollywood land, thank you for listening in and you know being a part of the show. I hope, uh, hope you all got something out of it. I really did. So uh, please like and subscribe and leave us a comment. We really need those comments. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter. Email us at willworkforpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, email us those, uh, those rejection letters, acceptance letters, whatever. Uh, willworkforpodcast at gmail.com. The same with the Instagram. And then our Twitter is B underscore unemployed. You can find me at regrets underscore never. And Brendan? Gobez underscore now. And uh, yeah, have a great day and uh, stay warm out there, guys. Stay warm. Yeah, shout out Texas. <laughs>